If you've got a Bible with you, open it up to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We're going to look at something today in this space of, have you ever been convinced you were absolutely right about something? You are absolutely right about something. Only to find out a little bit later, not so much. If you're married, that's like every Tuesday, okay? When I was like 10, 11, 12 years old, like middle school age, somewhere in there, uh, I was, you know, my brother and I's routine in the evenings, we get home from school and do whatever chores and homework we had, was mom and dad set the street lights, where when the street lights came on, that was your signal to come home, right? That was a different era in a way, right, where parents just let the kids roll right over the neighborhood, wherever we were at, whatever we were doing. Well, my brother and I, we met Jerry. He, was, he lived at the top of the hill, and he was a TikTok video just waiting to happen, okay? So Jerry was like four or five years older than us, and he had the really cool bicycle. I mean, he had the bike that we all wanted to have, you know, the big mag wheels. And Jerry was the one who did all the tricks, like the bunny hops, you know, like a bunny hop. And he did the kickouts, and he rode the wheelie, the long... I mean, Jerry was like king of all the bicycle stuff. And Jerry saw us one day, my brother Brad and I, and he said to us, he said, hey guys, do you want to be a part of my bicycle gang? Oh my gosh, I felt a chest hair pop out right there. Like I was just like, are you kidding me? Jerry wants us to join his bicycle gang? He said, here's the deal though, you got to get a jean jacket. Okay, you got to get a jean jacket, and then you bring the jean jacket to me, and I'm going to put the name of the bicycle gang on the back of the jean jacket. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to be amazing. We're going to be a part of Jerry's bicycle gang with a jean jacket. And I said, hey, cool, what's the name of the gang? And he said, cocaine. (laughs) Now, listen, when I'm 10, 11, 12 years old, I'm thinking coke, C-O-K-E, I'm thinking like Coke Zero, Coke Plus, you know, Coke, Ain. I, I'm like, cool, all right, we're in, yeah. So I go, so Brad and I go home, we run in the door, mom, dad's at work, mom, mom, guess what? We tell her the whole story. I said, we got to get some jean jackets. Okay, mom's like, okay, I'll get you some jean jackets because Jerry wants us to be a part of his bicycle gang. And he's going to put the name on the back. And she's like, okay, what's the name? I said, Cocaine. And she was just deadpan. Look, I mean, I could tell it wasn't Coke Zero, you know? It was, she just said, we're going to talk to your dad when he gets home. So needless to say, we never got the jean jackets. We never joined the bicycle gang. And shocker, like, we started noticing, like, police cars showing up at Jerry's house. I'd come home, i said, Mom, like, there's some cop cars up at Jerry's place. She's like, yeah, uh, and there, you know, there's a lot going on up there. I'm like, oh, okay, you know. And then Jerry just disappeared from school. Like, yeah. But I was absolutely convinced, right? I would have, that we needed to be a part of that bicycle gang. Until I wasn't. And we're entering a storyline a lengthy series now on a character in the Bible known as the Apostle Paul, who eventually will write 13 of the 27 New Testament books. 
And he will be as unlikely a character to enter into God's salvation story as Jerry would be to be like valedictorian of our class, kind of. Okay, so as we enter into this series, we're going to look at his life and his letters because what flows out of Paul's life are eventually many writings that have shaped our faith, our formation in Jesus Paul's had a great impact by the letters that he wrote from his own journey. But if Paul were standing before us biographically giving a sketch of his life, he would put himself in the category of the least likely, the most unheralded of the chosen to be in God's storyline. So if you're here today and you've come off of maybe our Easter season and this invitation to new life in Jesus, and you wonder what God could possibly do with your story and your background and from whatever you've come from, then I present to you a man named Paul the Apostle, whom this morning I've entitled, Looking at What You Can't See. His story begins for us in Acts 9 in a setting where his name is introduced as Saul of Tarsus. To understand Paul the Apostle, you got to understand that he was Saul of Tarsus before he was Paul the Apostle. And that's where we're going to pick it up today. And I put into top of your notes a little summary of Paul's life. So I'm going to keep that timeline there for several weeks ahead, just so you get an overview. If you just glance at that little chart at the beginning of your note sheet and online, your folks online host can direct you there. It'll be helpful for you to see as we unpack Paul's life from around 34 AD is where we're entering the story today in Acts 9. So Jesus crucified, buried, raised in 33 AD. So we're just within a year of those events, and Paul is inserted on the scene. And you see his life spans about 30 to 35 years. He's executed in 67 AD at the command of the emperor of Rome, Nero. So you can see from 34 to 67, Paul goes on quite a journey. He becomes the profile missionary leader. This is where the missions movement for the Christian faith gets its genesis. Its seed starts with Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul the Apostle. And you see, I put in your timeline there where the letters in the New Testament fall in the timeline of Paul's life. So to understand your New Testament, a good chunk of it, you have to understand the kind of biographical sketch of Paul's life. So what's what we're going to do? We're going to kind of go on a biographical journey, and then we'll jump down into different letters depending on where we're at in Paul's life. You excited about this series? I'm excited about it. I hope you are as well. So we'll get jumping into today. Acts 9, verse 1. Here's what it says. Meanwhile, Saul... Saul of Tarsus was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So there's the guy who's going to author almost half of your New Testament. The term breathing out, it actually comes in the origin. It's like, it's what the animals would use for like snorting. It would be like when they caught the scent, they were panting after their prey. That's the same term that's used here. So Saul is so focused on stamping out these people who are following Jesus. Saul of Tarsus is a leader in a movement called the Pharisees who were felt it was their role to defend the faith that they had been born and raised with. And they believed Jesus was a threat to this faith. 
They believed they had kind of won by executing him, kind of eliminated this threat. We finally got rid of this Jesus guy. We crucified him. We put him in a tomb. Can we just be done with this Jesus character? Saul was at the hub of all of that movement. So now he's this well, he's well-educated, he's well-respected, he's well-connected, he's well-schooled, and he's aggressive in stamping out this small remnant of people that have begun to follow this Jesus. So he's on the way to Damascus because he hears there's a little ragtag group up in Damascus who are claiming to be on the Jesus train. He's going to go shut that train down. This is the setting, Saul of Tarsus. Because ab- Saul is absolutely convinced he's right. And maybe that's some of your journey. Absolutely convinced you know. Like he's convinced there's no way Jesus of Nazareth could be the Messiah. He's convinced he's right. There's no way Jesus could be the Son of God. There's no way that this Jesus whom he witnessed be executed on a hill called Golgotha. There's no way whom he witnessed roll into the tomb a stone and guards place. There's no way this Jesus could be alive today because in Saul's mind, dead people remain dead. So Saul believes and is convinced he's right, that Jesus is wrong, that Jesus is preaching and speaking blasphemy, and the penalty for blasphemy was death, so he felt justified in being a part of the crowd who chanted, crucify him, execute him, because he was doing it in the name of religion. Saul's opposition to Jesus is rooted in his devotion to religion. In our language today, we might call Saul a hyper-fundamentalist. We might call Saul the one who would be like a guardian of the faith. So Saul believed that, you know, the high priests had gotten a little too cozy with Rome, and they were compromising on some of the core, kind of the core convictions of the Jewish faith. So Saul is righteously, in the name of religion, defending the faith. His opposition to Jesus and Jesus' followers isn't just done out of antagonism and a mean spirit. It's done out of a place of worship to his God. In the name of religion, he's going to stamp out what he felt was a corruption to his religion. And so he believed he was serving God by guarding the faith from a false teacher named Jesus of Nazareth. So this is where we pick it up in verse 2. And so he asked, he went to the high priest and he asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that was the term they used to describe this little cult of Jesus followers. They called them the way. Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And so kind of first of three principles today from this transition from Saul to Paul. The first principle we see out of verse 1 and 2 is that sometimes a devotion to religion can lead you to miss Jesus. Saul was so steeped in the Torah that he couldn't see the Torah fully alive right in front of him. Saul was so confident he understood who the Messiah was, what the Messiah would do and not do, that he couldn't see the Messiah alive right in front of him. Saul was so convinced that Jesus was a blasphemer that he joined the crowds and chanted, crucify him. So Saul, in my mind, Saul of Tarsus, is a sobering example of what it means to be so steeped in religion 
that you miss Jesus. And for some of you, that's your story. For some of you, you were raised in an environment where you were taught all kinds of religious do's and religious don'ts, and you had all the religious answers. You had a, a chapter and a verse and an answer and a, and a process, and a, you just, you were so steeped in religion, but part of your journey is that you just miss this personal relationship with the living Christ, like you miss Jesus in the midst of all the layers and layers of religion. Sometimes I find myself in social settings where the folks I'm with don't know what I do for a living, which I really appreciate. I definitely don't lead with what I do for a living. It tends to shut the conversations down, you know what I'm saying? So I'll be in a social setting and the conversation will turn towards someone in the group will say something like, you know, all the stuff done in the name of religion. Like they're just going, the religion, God, faith, church, I mean, they're just going down the rabbit hole of everything that's wrong done in the name of religion and using all kinds of salty language to describe it and on and on it goes. And, you know, 15, 20 minutes into this kind of a dialogue, I'm kind of on the back skirts of the conversation and somewhere along the way, someone will say, so what do you do? <laughs> and then, you know, I say, oh, I'm a pastor. Oh boy. And then that's all the, you know, Depending on the social setting, one of the guys will say, we need to buy you a drink. And I say, that's not really how this works, you know. <laughs> Sorry, you know, buy you a drink to make up for it. No. And I'll kind of let it go on for a while. And usually in the conversation, I'll go down this road with it. I'll say, you know, I think you're right. They're usually super apologetic because I feel like they offended me. I said, well, I'm not offended. I said, I actually think a good chunk of it, you're right. And I actually think Jesus agrees with most of what you were saying as well. Now, he might not have used the language you used, but, you know, like, there's a whole bunch of stuff done in the name of religion that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. And I said, this is one of the things that Jesus, when he was on the scene, was dealing with, is that there was a lot of religious history that he was confronting. And I would say, you know, there was a large group of people in the name of religion that were chanting, crucify Jesus. So actually, he understands. And then somewhere along the way, I just say something like, but I just made a decision years ago that I'm not going to let a bunch of stuff done on kind of in the name of Jesus that, does, and it, that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. I'm just not going to let that toss Jesus out. I don't want to judge Jesus based upon the abuses done in his name. And so I've just chosen to look at Jesus for who he genuinely is, not a bunch of stuff that was done, which I agree with you, not appropriate in his name. And that, so in the name of religion, if you toss Jesus out, I think that's the dangerous space and we have to look and examine it. And that's when they want the pastor to move on to the next conversation, right? They're like, you go to the next group, you know, over here. But this is where kind of Saul of Tarsus, right? We're... He would have been in that kind of a conversation and would have found himself steeped in dialogues like, look at verse 3, and he, as he neared Damascus on his journey, underlining your Bible, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Don't you love, sometimes God acts suddenly. Sometimes it's long and slow and over the course of time, but God sometimes will step in suddenly. He's a God outside of time. He can act as he wishes, how he wishes, when he wishes. And for Saul of Tarsus, he's saying in Acts 9, today's your day, Saul. 
I know you're convinced you're right, Saul, and Jesus is going to step in the way to show him the way. Notice this. Verse 3, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, notice, why do you persecute, underline, me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So second principle is that I wrote from this is often God has to stand in the way to show you the way. So here's a map of the route that Paul was on, right? So he's traveling about 170 miles from Jerusalem north up into modern-day Syria, the road to Damascus. Damascus is in Syria. It's a two- to three-week journey. That's his path. So he's south to north there. And on this road, Jesus steps in the way to show him the way. Saul has a destination in mind. Saul has a plan. He was determined to do what he felt needed to be done until Jesus steps in the way to show him the way. And notice he says to Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, this had to be quite alarming to Saul because what is Saul convinced? Where is Jesus? He thinks Jesus is dead And his experience is when people die, they remain dead. And so he's now having a dialogue with this Jesus, whom he was convinced is dead, whom he's convinced the people who are claiming he's alive are kind of lost the marbles and we're going to go arrest them and shut this movement down. He's now speaking with this Jesus, whom he thought was dead, who is now alive. Do you see how Jesus is stepping in the way To show him, I know you're convinced, Saul, you're right. I know you're convinced you've got a plan. I know you're convinced you're going one way, but I'm going to step in the way to show you the way. And N.T. Wright calls this a conversion. Look at this quote I put in your notes. We call this event now here in Acts 9 a conversion. But it was more like a volcanic eruption. Follow this thunderstorm and tidal wave all coming together. If the death and resurrection of Jesus is the hinge which the, the great door of history swung open at last, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus was the moment when all the ancient promises of God, hear this, gathered around themselves, rolled themselves into a ball, and came hurtling through that open door out into the wide world beyond. This is what we say in church circles is a Damascus Road experience. This is where it gets its roots. That's church language for you had a turning point in your life. You had some kind of spiritual experience. It might not have been quite as dramatic as this one here, but perhaps it was. Where your part of your story is you were going one way and Jesus stepped in your way to show you the way. Perhaps that's why you're here or you're joining us from wherever you are. That that's your Damascus Road experience, a turning point. I was going this direction, now I'm going this direction. I was about these priorities, now I'm about this, this set of priorities. A Damascus Road experience. On the Damascus Road, you learn this, change is possible. Of everything Saul to Paul's life is going to teach us, certainly top of the stack is going to be change is possible. What has been doesn't have to be what always will be. 
change is a theme based on the resurrection power of Christ. And now Saul's life is going to be radically changed, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, to the degree when those who knew him well are going to struggle with the change. Anybody been there? Perhaps that's happening in your life. You've had some pretty significant Jesus moments, changing, turning some things around, perhaps radically reorienting your priorities. And maybe those closest to you are on struggle street to kind of believe it or get on board with it or because they just, it's so different. This is what's happening with Saul. Saul to Paul. Change is possible. And God through a multiplicity of ways. He can stand in the way to show you the way. I was thinking about all the different ways God stands in the way to show us the way. Like, have you found in your own journey with God, sometimes God stands in the way to show you the way through unanswered prayer. Have you noticed this in your journey? Like sometimes the way God stands in your road, meets you on your Damascus road, is he, you're crying out, convinced that relationship is right, only to find out later, aren't you super grateful that he never answered that prayer on that relationship? Come on now. I mean, you were convinced. And God just said, no, you don't really even know what you're asking for. And he steps in the way through unanswered prayer. He said, you're not going down that road. Or it could have been a job situation. You were absolutely convinced. This job, this career path, this change, this is what he has for you. And that doesn't come to fruition. Only to find out later, you look back and go, well, you're super grateful for that that you didn't go down that road. He stepped in the way to show you the way there, sometimes through unanswered prayer. You know, sometimes a ministry dream, you have this dream of what God wants you to do for ministry, something in his name, for his purpose, and it just never comes to fruition. And years later, you look back and go, I think God stepped in the way there to show me the way. Unanswered prayer. You know, sometimes there's a story in the Old Testament of God stepping in the way of a prophet named Balaam, Numbers 22, through a talking donkey. Anybody encountered the talking donkey in your journey with the Lord? That's Balaam's journey. He's on a donkey. He's riding. He's got some things to do in the name of God. And the donkey going down this road and just stops. And Balaam just keeps beating the donkey. The donkey won't move and he just keeps beating the donkey because the donkey sees an angel of the Lord standing in the path with swords drawn that if he keeps going, he's going to be struck dead. The donkey's not moving to save Balaam's life. And Balaam's there whacking the donkey, trying to get it to move. And eventually the donkey turns and talks to Balaam. Anybody encounter the talking donkey? Be careful your answer to that question based on who you're sitting around. <laughs> Sometimes the talking donkey can be a courageous friend who sits down with you and has the conversation in love that needs to be had. You know, that's the talking donkey stepping in the way to show you the way. Could be a trusted counselor, could be a small group leader, could be a pastor, could be a spouse, could be a brother, a sister, a mom, a dad, someone who steps in the way, who has enough courage to try to show you the way that maybe they're seeing some things down your road that you're not able to see. You're Balaam on the back of the donkey, beating it, convinced you got to go down that road. If you go down that road, you're going to be struck, you're going over a cliff, you're going to be struck dead. And God steps in the way, he has a, a donkey speak to you. There's a whole multiplicity of ways that God can step in the way to show you the way. 
And it could be as dramatic as just a direct word from the Lord. You know, some of that's your story today. You're here today because God had spoken to you through a sequence of events. Could have been through a friend, could have been through a family member, could have been through a song, could have been through a sermon, could have been through a whole sequence of what that you just know beyond a shadow of a doubt that was the voice of the Lord into your life saying it's time to change. There's a turning point coming and that's your Damascus Road moment. And how gracious of God to step in our way. When we're convinced we're right to show us the way. You know, perseverance only makes sense if you're heading in the right direction. That only makes sense. If you're on the Damascus Road headed to arrest a bunch of Christians, women and children included, and throw them in jail, it's not wise to persevere on that road. Wisdom would be turn around. The Bible word would be repentance. If you're on the wrong road, go in the wrong direction for the wrong reasons and the wrong motives, it's not wise to persevere down that road. The Bible has a term for that. It's called foolishness. It's foolish to keep going down the wrong road for the wrong reasons at the wrong time with the wrong destiny. That's foolish. Wisdom would be turn around. But if you're on the right road for the right reasons, go in the right direction. And perseverance makes sense if you're heading in the right direction. But for Saul of Tarsus, God had to stand in the way to show him the way. Hey, Saul, you're not going to Damascus to get done what you want to get done. Notice what he says. You're persecuting me. I've got plans and purposes for you, Saul. That was not on Saul's agenda. But there's only one sovereign Lord in the story. There's only one capital S sovereign, and Saul's finding out. He's not nearly as in control of his one and only life as he thought he was. The God of the universe, in the name of Jesus, has plans for his life, just as he has plans for you and for me. And so the first part in this journey with Saul to Paul is sometimes our devotion to religion, we can lose sight of Jesus. You can get so steeped in the religious tradition and religious history that you can get caught up in all of those liturgical elements and lose Jesus. And then sometimes, as Saul's finding out, he has to step in the way when you're convinced you're right to show you the way. And now verse 7, third principle comes in this. The men traveling with Saul stood there. Imagine that group. They had to be quite speechless. (laughs) That's what it says. They were speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground but when he opened his eyes, hear this, he could, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. How ironic is this? That in Saul's blindness, he begins to see. Well, how many of that is our journey? Sometimes, right, God has to strike, stand in the way, striking us with a blindness to help us see. How ironic is it that Saul's being led by the hand into Damascus when his intent was to go into Damascus too? Picture that. Well, he ends up in Damascus, just not in the condition that he envisioned going to Damascus. And then verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias So here's Ananias. He's a follower of Jesus. 
just doing what followers of Jesus do, no doubt praying, talking to God. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. I love the specificity. God is a God of precision. Do you love that? He's got street address for you. You feel like God's lost track of you? Listen, he's got your street address down. House number, street number, he knows where you are. Straight street. Just go over on straight street, Judah. Hey, there's a guy named Saul there. (laughs) Billy Graham used to say our God is a God of precision. Precisely speaking what needs to be spoken. Look at verse 13. I love Ananias' response. Totally how I think most of us would respond. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. There's your reputation. Tells you what Saul's about. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. Now, Gentile is a Bible term for non-Jews. It's going to be a very important part in Paul's journey, that the commission of God primarily on Paul's life is going to be into the non-Jewish world. He's going to press into the Gentile world and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him, notice how much he must suffer for my name. Tough to put Paul as a poster child for prosperity gospel when the original call on Paul's life is a suffering, is a sharing in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of the name. And so I put our third principle from today is that Jesus sees beyond who we've been to who you will become. You see, Ananias, he'd given up on Saul. You know, the first, it was Saul who was standing giving approval at Stephen's martyrdom. I think I've got a picture of Stephen's martyrdom here. And if you look at that picture, Ted, it's probably back a few slides, but if you go back, there's a picture of Saul standing giving approval. That's him on the right. And that's Stephen, one of the early followers, the first martyr in the church, and they're stoning Stephen in the name of religion. And that's Saul giving approval. That's Saul standing there with his hand on his hips. No doubt Stephen's family has long since given up on Saul. Ananias has given up on Saul. Pretty good chance most of the Christian community has given up on Saul. And perhaps Saul has given up on Saul. But Jesus sees things that no one else does. He sees beyond the religious system. He sees beyond the Pharisees' plans. He sees beyond Saul's hardened heart, Saul's convinced mindset. Jesus says, I see you. I know you. I have plans for you. Saul, it's not about who you've been. It's about who you will become. And I think the Lord's brought someone here to church today for that very sentence. It's not about who you've been. In Jesus' name, it's about who you will become. It's not your history or your current reality that are the true grounds of your identity. It's about your destiny and who he has and what he has in store for you in the future. This is Saul's journey into Paul. There's no way Saul of Tarsus could have envisioned the plans Jesus could see. 
You know, Jesus sees things in you, in me, in us that we can't see in and of ourselves. Even the people around him, like Ananias, he couldn't see. Because it's covered up under layers of religion. It's covered up on a bunch of stuff that's supposedly been done in the name of Jesus, anything to do with Jesus. And Saul may have been absolutely convinced at his core that he's right. But this morning, the storyline is, God steps onto his Damascus road just like he steps onto yours and mine. And he says, I see you, I know you, I have plans for you. It's not about where you've been, what you've been, it's about who you will be. It's releasing what was to embrace what will be. That's the story of the transition from Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle. And if God could step in the way of that, do you see the number of layers in Saul's life that Jesus had to penetrate through to get to the core of change at the core of this man? I often wonder, I often wonder if, you know, in the big plan of God's salvation history, I wonder if he plucked the least likely character, like the most, the one who you could just, there's no way you can explain this guy's massive change and conversion and the radical like renewal of his life there's a like he picked the poster child for least likely in Saul of Tarsus he says I pick you and I'm going to use you and you're going to write 13 of the 27 New Testament books today St. Paul's Cathedral and 190 nations I don't think Saul of Tarsus was seeing that so is it no surprise church, that the early church, when the leaders of the early church were working with people who were struggling to believe in Jesus, were struggling to jump on the Jesus train, here's what Peter and James and John and the others, here's the assignment the early church leaders would often give. They would tell them, go study the life of Saul of Tarsus and come back to us. And that became like the Billy Graham evangelistic tool of the early church. Go look at Saul of Tarsus and come back and explain to us how he is Paul the Apostle now on the front line of this ministry. How does that happen? Jesus, the resurrected Christ, bringing change at the core of a person. And so maybe that's for you this morning. Maybe today is Jesus stepping onto your personal Damascus road. Maybe it's a Damascus road that's been steeped in religion. Maybe there's just layers and layers of stuff done in the name of religion that has just kind of just been piled up around your heart and you've, you just missed Jesus along the way. And today it's kind of blowing away some of the clouds of all of that and just helping you see who Jesus really is. Or maybe it's you're just deeply convinced you're right about who God is and who Christ is and what this life is all about. He's stepping in the way to show you there may be another way. Or perhaps it's you're pretty tethered to what was or maybe you've got a history and a past that you just think, I don't know that God could ever use me. What's he got to do with me? And you need to release what was to embrace what will be because Jesus sees things in you 
that no one else could see. Change is possible. Not only possible, it should be normative for the followers of Jesus. So worship team, why don't you come back on up? We're going to pray, believing that this may be the beginning, like for Saul of Tarsus, a change that leads to, as we're going to track for the next several months, this guy's life just goes on a whole different road. And that could be for you and for me as well. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you love us and you pursue us and that there's no amount of history, there's, there's no amount of baggage and layers that you can't penetrate through. And maybe this morning there's some who've been caught up in their own stuff. Maybe this morning is struck blind in order to see. Maybe this morning is releasing what was so you, we can embrace what will be. And maybe this morning it's recognizing having enough humility to say, hey, we're convinced we're absolutely right, but maybe not. So thank you, Lord, for stepping in a way to show us the way. If we're on the right road, give us perseverance to stay the course. If we're on the wrong road, headed the wrong direction, give us the humility to turn around and the grace to go a new direction. Thank you for preserving this storyline, this character, this life. We just want to commit the series to you as we journey with Saul to Paul. Teach us your ways, we pray. Teach us what it means to be a disciple. To be devoted to the things that you want us to be devoted to. To say yes to the things you want us to say yes to. Help us to have the kind of responsiveness that Ananias had. Even in his own fear and in his own insecurity, Ananias does what you ask him to do. Help us to be attentive to your voice, saying yes. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.